Hello and welcome to another episode of the Nutrition with Rebecca podcast. You're joined by me, your host Rebecca and of course as always my wonderful sidekick Edith. Now we are back from a very wet walk, a very wet walk that we actually missed out on the snow. I'm pretty sad about that. Hella British over here, right? Talking about the weather. We love it, right? We absolutely love it. We love to state the obvious. Oh my gosh, did you know, Barbara? It's raining. Shock. No, I didn't realise. Thank you so much for that. But Edith loves the snow, you know? We had it not so long ago and she really does thrive in it. Like, I love that word. <laughs> she does love it so much and it's so wonderful to see her running around. Yet today... She was running around in the mud, in the puddles. She is genuinely like a child, you know, that wears wellies and has their little all-in-one cute little suit on. That's my dog without the wellies, without the little cute suit on. And then my floors are ever so grateful for her presence in the house. (laughs) If you know, you know. So today's Q&A some amazing questions and actually something before I get going on those that I just want to touch base on now. I've been having some really in-depth chat, in-depth chats, sorry, with an evidence-based dermatologist and we've been talking about the link between nutrition and skin, namely facial skin like, and any facial breakouts, because there is this misassociation that certain food, namely ultra-processed food, causes breakouts, and there is absolutely zero evidence that suggests that, and we also have breakouts around PMS, around your time of the month, and again, we try and associate that to food, when actually that comes from hormone balance, And there is, like I said, zero evidence at all that any nutrition causes breakouts within our skin. And uh, we look too often to try and change nutrition, to mitigate nutrition, to remove food out of our diet. And we get so stressed about it. And I think, do you know what? We've got to start normalizing skin breakouts because it is normal. And if we consider why people feel that skin breakouts are bad it links back to diet culture right because not only do they promote the thin ideal but they perfect they they promote this like perfection body and then of course anything that's outside of this perfect remit we then demonize we criticize and we try and change and I know for myself in particular I'd say probably from about the start of 2023 I said to myself it's like you're just not gonna wear makeup anymore (laughs) Like I used to wash my hair purposely and put makeup on for like reels and to do lives. And I was like, but that doesn't always show me with authenticity. If I've got a breakout, I'd be like, oh no, I'm not doing a reel today. When actually nobody really cares about your skin. They care about who you are as a person and your skin doesn't make you a better or more superior person, right? So I think that's just something to bear in mind. There's also no link between dairy and skin because that is something that we hear quite a lot as well. And there was actually a meta-analysis that came out just recently confirming that again. And then one other thing that's really, really, and I'm going to swear, pissed me off. And I don't like to swear because when you're uploading the podcast, it asks you whether this podcast has, has explicit content. 
Well, today, guys, it has explicit content. So if you don't like explicit content, I am very sorry, but I am fucking fuming. So my favourite donut place in the UK, my favourite donut place in the entire world is Everglazed. Disney Springs in Orlando. And let me tell you, I cannot wait for my child to be around five or six so I can book to go back to Disney. To have not just a a donut, but of course, to go to Disney. But I have a place in the UK that I love, donuts. And my husband and I have been going for probably about seven years now. Frankly, they've just lost a customer. They have, on their social media today, promoted Fat Thursday. And their Fat Thursday... It's basically marketing eating a six pack of sugared donuts out of a Polish tradition whereby you overeat the day before Lent. So they're promoting overeating and then labelling it fat. It's body shaming. It's absolutely disgusting. And I take myself back to when I was 140 kilos and both actually at 53 kilos. I held a massive perception on what other people thought about my food choices. Christ, would I have had a donut at 140 kilos? No, because I would have had the perception and belief that people thought I was fat. But then at 53 kilos, I would have done the same. Oh, I can't eat that because I'll get fat. And all we do is shame our bodies based on food. We critically analyse our food choices and have this association that is going to make our bodies change overnight. We have food on a pedestal. It's like like the Last Supper. You see it still now. People overeat before they're going to get back on their diet on Monday. The challenge is the psychological battle that these people can't see with their messaging. And I know what that feels like. Being in that mental jail where you're consumed that much about other people's thoughts where you're seeing this messaging and then berating your body. Like if I walked into that shop today and saw Fat Thursday get a pack of six donuts, I'd be like, sorry, what? Does eating donuts make me fat? No, it fucking doesn't, Sharon. And I just hate this. It's not even a marketing. I don't even know what they're trying to achieve with it. I genuinely don't in this day and age. And I honestly think sometimes probably some naivety within me that we are doing well in the fitness industry and that we're heading towards more health in that overarching multifaceted puzzle where we're considering connection, relationships, mental health, physical health, training for our health, not for our bodies and coming away from this thin ideal promoted on us from diet culture, looking at inclusivity. But again, this could be the echo chamber that I'm exposed to. And it could also be the incredible clients that I all work with who are all so authentic and they know in which direction they want their health to go not this you know diet culture narrative but then I have reminders like today and I'm just done with it I am done with it if we haven't got men on the biggest podcast in the world we have got people marketing in supermarkets and I saw it as well I saw it in bakeries early on in the year like everyone's on their health kick so now we're selling salads 
Ay. We have overcomplicated health. We have overcomplicated nutrition. We have overcomplicated fitness. And now we overanalyze everything. And I long for the day that people get to a place of food freedom. Body acceptance, because it is empowering. So empowering. And I know all of my clients will. They'll be smiling and nodding at this because they're all on that journey thinking, yeah, you know, I know what she means by when she says that. Because until you're there, it feels impossible. But the word itself says I'm possible. And everyone is possible, which is exactly what we do at Thrive With Life. Make your dreams an absolute reality. A bit like Walt Disney. Maybe that's what I should change the name to, you know? <laughs> anyway, that's my two things for this morning. This afternoon. Whatever it, whatever time it is that you're listening to this. Clearly, at 25 past four in the afternoon, I have no awareness of what time of the day it is. It's afternoon. You're welcome, guys. Right, first question. How to keep working on your food relationship when you're busy and feel disconnected? Right, okay. So a bit of reality here. You're always going to be busy. We are all always going to be busy. And I think that in itself, that can create paralysis. And it's one of those where I hear very often people say, I'm too busy to do this. I'm too busy to do that. Too busy to have my lunch? No. It's not that you're too busy. It's that we don't prioritise it. And maybe it feels a little bit vulnerable right now for you to be prioritising that. But I'd also question where your expectations are with it. And your expectations need to be manageable, but they also need to encompass that fierce compassion. Whereby you're recognising that this is not going to be easy. This is going to take time and it is going to require conscious effort. But then checking in with your values and saying, well, how does this work support me? How does this work align to my values? And I say this so often, right? Say if you value connection and you're currently preoccupied by food and you have a lot of good and bad food labels, a lot of food avoidance and maybe struggle with overeating, over restriction. Well, how does consciously putting effort in now into your food relationship support you in pursuit of that value whereby you won't be preoccupied by food, whereby you'll be able to sit at a dinner table without thinking about whether or not that food has less than 600 calories in? without being resentful of your partner for ordering the burger when you're sat there with the salad, without worrying if someone's going to bring Easter eggs to the house because you fear having the chocolate in the house, you know? How does this work align to the future version of yourself? And realise as well that to begin with, this will feel like a chore, but then it does become something that feels quite cool and quite, like I said, empowering. And your expectation shouldn't be wild. Like, the Thrive With Life, we pride ourselves on mindfulness. We pride ourselves on inclusion. We pride ourselves on this work fitting within your life. So asking yourself now, what are the expectations that you hold of yourself? And I've actually put it on my story this week in that I noticed that I dropped off some of my mindful behaviours and that of late, I've been noticing an increase in my emotions. So I needed to get back to something that was going to help me. So the tools on my tool belt. So I've gone back to journaling and daily yoga. And that's daily journaling. But I've set myself a target of five minutes of daily yoga 
five minutes of journaling, 10 minutes a day. And when we talk about things like mindful meals, realistically speaking, you're not going to be able to have a mindful meal with three meals and two snacks a day. Maybe that's just one of those meals. But one of those meals, you're consciously paying attention to removing your distraction, slowing that pace of eating down, honoring the taste, the texture, the smell, and really chewing your food and leaning into the hunger scale. Like if your expectations are so high and you're aiming for perfection, you will fail. If you want to succeed, switch your narrative to we are all busy. Everybody's busy and you will never get all of your to-do list done. That's fact. That's reality. But you can make the time to do this work with realistic expectations. Um, okay. Are there any specific guidelines you'd recommend for someone with PCOS? My friend has just been diagnosed and I want to help her as best as I can. Okay, well, firstly, that's amazing that you're wanting to help your friend. And I think in particular, one of the things that I always say is having a boundary here is really important. Like I know for myself, trying to help friends and trying to help family it never ends well, never ends well. And of course, I don't know the specifics and the details of your friend, but I think it's wonderful that you want to help her, but I'd argue on what level then is gonna cross a boundary, you know? And if she is maybe struggling with fat loss and she's just had a diagnosis of PCOS and maybe she is in a larger body, then having some coaching would definitely help her. And actually weight loss at the beginning of diagnosis of PCOS, especially if you're carrying high levels of body fat, can bring improvements in menstrual cycle and fertility. And you can also see some improvements in insulin sensitivity. So these are people who are, because we have like lean PCOS and then we have general PCOS. There's a couple of considerations to make with PCOS. So sometimes, again, individual dependent, they can have a slightly lower BMR. So on average, this tends to be around about 120 to 140 calories. Hunger levels might also be a little bit higher too. They also have increased levels of testosterone, which can affect satiety hormones and then linked to reduced satiety. They may also see an increase in their appetite quicker after eating. That impact, impact sorry, on ghrelin. However, if you're in a larger body and you're managing your weight loss, there can be improvements with satiety. There is actually a huge, huge risk of development of binge eating with PCOS and especially when you read and see some charlatans out there telling you to remove all sugary foods from your diet banish food groups it can make it really really challenging because then you'll over restrict and find yourself overeating but arguably if we're looking at the basics with nutrition it's it doesn't vary massively from that of anybody really eating protein three to four times a day of around about 25 to 30 grams of protein. Supporting hunger, eating mindfully, managing the food volume, so getting lots of fiber in, 
Lots of plant-based foods, whole grains, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins D and B can be so supportive. Like with everybody, reduce your saturated fat. Like with everybody, manage your stress levels. And actually, with PCOS, high stress can exacerbate symptoms with hormones. There's some really cool research out there about inositol, which can help with management of your cycle as well. And I would also recommend, again, sometimes it might help to reduce carbohydrate intake slightly and increase those polyunsaturated fats just because of the difficulties with satiety. So fat is an energy macronutrient as well as carbohydrates, but it's slower releasing. But one of the biggest things is getting support. Getting support hugely in the mindfulness, in the the regulation of your hormones and your emotions and that stress management. Any advice for not eating? <laughs> Any advice for not eating the kids' leftovers? I don't even think until just recently that doing this work that I do it, but now consciously aware it's a habit that isn't helpful. The reason I laughed is because I hear this with so many people, like genuinely so many. Rebecca, I didn't realise I'm eating turkey dinosaurs and I didn't even know until we started doing this work. Because of course, one of the most magical parts of this work is building (laughs) self-awareness. So, okay, there's a couple of things to consider here. The first one would be, is this linked to food wastage? So are you eating the food because you don't want to bin the food? And if that's the case, can you acknowledge that put it in your mouth is using yourself as a bin? So either way, you're binning the food. You're either doing so in a way that doesn't align to your goals and values, i.e. eating it mindlessly, or you're doing so in a way that you, do, I don't know, supports the environment by getting compost bin. Secondly, I'd consider, okay, when was the last time you ate? So if you didn't eat, and say it's like six o'clock, right? And you last ate at one o'clock. Realistically speaking, that is a long period of time to go without eating. So you will have, again, irregular hormones in terms of hunger and satiety, which can bring on mindless eating. So in this scenario, what you could do, one of two things, you could have your dinner with the children and sit down and give yourself evidence that you can eat your dinner with them And you'll feel satiated and full, thus therefore not wanting to finish their plates. Or have a snack. Have a snack before you're making the kids dinner because you're going an extremely long period of time without eating. So you could have a couple of baby bells, you could have an apple, you could have a protein yogurt, a protein bar, something like that that is just going to help you with your satiety and your fullness. And actually, one cool thing that another one of my clients did, and actually, I'm not sure if she still does it now, but this was something that we did quite early on. And let me tell you, she's done incredible with her food journey. She got her children to clear up their own plates. I was like, babe, that's revolutionary. Yes. So not only are the children eating to their fullness, so they're recognizing what it feels like in their tummy, but then they're clearing up their plates 
putting it in the dishwasher or putting it in the sink, whatever they need to do next. So you're also teaching the children how to clean up after themselves. It's like a double win, (laughs) a double win. But then again, if it's the case of they're leaving quite a lot, can you save it? Can you save it for tomorrow? Or using that compost bin, as I said. But making sure you're going into these scenarios with some food in your stomach. And maybe we do that for like a week or two weeks to give yourself the evidence that you don't then eat the children's leftovers that actually you feel okay in yourself. Or like I said, sitting down and eating with them, making it an experience for the children, an experience for yourself, and you'll be eating till fullness so you won't want to finish theirs. And then if you do finish theirs, realise that that's a choice, reflect on it. Reflect on why that is. Um, eating more regularly makes viable sense when I talk to you about it. But when I try to implement it, it feels unnerving and then don't do it, but recognise now I then overeat. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, baby, you've sort of answered your own question there. <laughs> yeah, right. I completely hear you with this. And uh, I've said this a few times just recently in that we have this like associated labels with certain meals of the day so like breakfast is between seven and nine lunch is between 12 and two dinner is between six and eight and then we call everything else around that snacks and I think the word snacks in itself for some people can can cause this association that it's excess so that you're eating in excess if you're eating more than the three meals a day And let's be honest, realistically speaking, most people now struggle to make a complete meal because they've been taught low fat, low carb, food avoidance. And we now have this belief that one Weetabix and a banana is a complete meal. And it's not. It's really not. And alongside that, when people were just eating three meals a day, my life it was years ago right I think my grandparents probably did that when they were my age which is what like 50 years ago demands on humans has gotten greater we are working longer hours we are up for longer we have more commitments therefore our bodies require energy And I think one of the things to bear in mind here is like regular eating is a fundamental principle of the Thrive With Life. It's a key factor in the development of a healthy relationship with food. And you ask any evidence practitioner, they will also resonate with that and agree. If you have ever fallen into overeating and emotional eating, binge eating, regular eating is so important. And like you just said here, when you skip those snacks, you end up mindlessly overeating. And I think one of the biggest fears that people have is if they snack, they will still overeat. But that's not necessarily the case. And we talk a lot about overeating coming from emotional dysregulation, that it coming from a place of stress or like different thoughts and feelings within the day, when actually it can also come from an over-restriction in the day. It can come from a lack of satiety and a lack of fullness. And if you consider as well, you're at service to everybody else throughout your day. And therefore, when you get home and you sit down on the couch and it's 8.39pm, that's the only time you've got to yourself. 
And then you've got irregularities with your hormones, your hunger hormones that are just coming to the surface because you finally stopped doing everything that you're doing. Then you feel like a bottomless pit. And the food in your environment, because we don't banish food out of our environment, right? It's then, oh, I'm overeating. Oh, this feels out of control. Now I feel guilty. I wake up tomorrow and I restrict. And it's that continuous cycle. So I think recognizing that what you're doing right now isn't helping you. And if you're choosing to stay here, that's a choice. And every challenge now, I mean, no, that was not the right thing to say. Change is not going to be easy. It's going to be uncomfortable. If it was easy and comfortable, you would just implement it and you wouldn't be asking this question. But it's likely that this has been a belief of yours for so many years, right? But now we've got to go away and seek new evidence. So I like to say this. Instead of thinking that this is where you've got to eat for the rest of your life, like three meals, two snacks... Just say to yourself, I'm going to do it for a week. I'm going to do this for one week and then I'm going to reflect and see how I feel. And then after that week, check in. I'm going to do it for another week. After that, reflect, check in. Because it can feel daunting to think I've got to do this for the rest of my life. And I realize now that I say that to people. I'm like, I still regularly eat now and I'm over a decade into it. She says, getting ready for her five o'clock snack. <laughs> so she doesn't mind us eat her tea, you know, Ken, you know, you know. And it, that can feel daunting in itself. And I think the fear of weight gain with regularly eating actually creates this paralysis as well. And it's paralysis by analysis. You're constantly thinking whether you should snack or whether you shouldn't snack, knowing that actually right now the best thing for you is to snack, but your beliefs misbeliefs limiting beliefs tell you you shouldn't be snacking weight gain doesn't come from snacking let me tell you that weight gain comes from eating in an energy surplus for a significant amount of time 40 to 70 percent above your calorie needs but actually you could do that by not regularly eating because you fall into mindless eating more frequently so maybe setting alarms I know that's something I did to start with and I still say it now that Alexa goes off at 6pm tells me to have tea because if not I just work through and work through and work through. So setting alarms. So you haven't got the then use your cognitive thought process that's taken out of it and you just get an alarm come up on your phone that says eat and then you eat you know and you commit to that for one week just one week all right. So that's it that's the questions. Amazing. As always, you're all incredible. And thank you so much for asking such incredible questions. And as always, if you have any more, please do drop me a message. And if you're listening to this thinking, gosh, Rebecca is such a vibe. Thrive with life sounds like it's just something that I need to end the battle of yo-yo dieting, all or nothing, mindless eating, and you're looking to get to a place of food freedom, body acceptance, with sustainable health and I call it sustainable health because for some people that's fat loss, some people that's not. This is a person-centered one-to-one coaching. We do everything on a very individual level that's in pursuit of your goals. If you're ready to make the change, I will link my details below. We have one space left, one space left for coaching. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Have a wonderful day, afternoon, morning, wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening to this. Thank you.